Blog Talk Radio. For sustained humanity, human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin to where you belong. Oh, keep up town, keep up town, this is a big town. Look up, 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 look
the club, original one. East of town, let's see East of town, let's see East of town. do we be? We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. You see it started a long time ago and it wasn't a show. We gave birth to a style like a precocious child. Feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Cause we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. Everyone can wear. Everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. And we go on and on. We'd like to welcome everyone to Africa on the Move. It's an honor and privilege where we can come to your home this evening to speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We're talking about on the eighth day of May 2020, we have a special program. This program is in support of African Liberation Month, which is being organized all African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our special topic today is a tribute to moms Mothers of the Masses, Happy Mother Day. And to discuss this particularly important issue with us, we have with us Professor Layla D. Brown, Ph.D., Assistant Professor of Cultural Anthropology and Africana Studies, Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Department of Cultural Society and Global Studies at Northeastern University. Also, she is a organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC, and she has been able to travel around the world and get a different perspective on the life and the conditions of African people in the world. And we hope to be enlightened by her experiences as she come and share her thoughts on this important day today that we call Mother's Day. So right now, what we want to do is bring her in, and we would like to just say first and foremost to Layla, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Sister Layla. Thank you for having me. Well, Sister Layla, you know, we're talking about Mother's Day, and, um, you know, 
when you have a mother, you realize how special that mother is. But let's really critique this issue of dealing with Mother Day, what it really, really is and mean, and maybe raise some issues in terms of coming to have a better understanding so we can make this particular day a lot more beneficial to the world in terms of appreciating mothers. At least that's the mm-hmm. position I'm taking. We'll see where, where this role can lead us. Sister Lalo, <laughs> Don call you Professor Lalo because you work hard, you earn a title, you deserve it. If that's okay with you, Professor Leo. That's fine. What is Mother Day, or what it should be? Two questions: What is Mother Day, and what not is it? What it should be? What's your response to that? So, um, as I was preparing for this conversation today, I was trying to look up some of the histories of Mother's Day, um, and what I found is that in the context of the U.S. Um, in spite of the way that Mother's Day is celebrated as a largely commercial holiday today, it actually started with quite political origins. Um, so in, in, according to sort of U.S. history, um, some of the first or earliest Mother's Day celebrations actually took place in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, and, they were, and some of them were particularly, you know, obviously this is a sort of white, mainstream history of Mother's Day. Um, But the early Mother's Days were centered around Mother's Day work clubs, um, which were designed to help um, women, white women in this country, with their sort of caring for children or parenting skills. Um, There was this uh, Mother's Friendship Day, which was organized around gathering former Union and Confederate soldiers together to promote reconciliation. Um, And then there was even a Mother's Peace Day um, in 1873. Um, And so what we know to be Mother's Day in this country now officially became a holiday in 1914. Um, And that that holiday was sort of declared by this woman, um, Anna Jarvis, uh, and her mother, and her mother was one of the organizers of one of those earlier events that I explained. Um, And one of the things that she wanted to do at that time, she wanted that to be a time for people to be with their families and recognize the work and the role that mothers play. Um, And she actually was instrumental in in the fact that we, you know, celebrate Mother's Day by giving women flowers um, because she worked with the sort of flower industry to have carnations be used for that day. But within six years, even she herself, was already disgusted with the commercial nature of Mother's Day. Um, And so by 1920, she was actually already petitioning for Mother's Day to no longer be a holiday. Um, And so I think it's interesting when we think about, um, you know, all the the commercial nature of holidays in this country, um, and we reconcile that with the fact that Mother's Day, um, in spite of the fact that it's not necessarily directly tied to sort of African um, liberation struggles, that Mother's Day in the U.S. at least um, does have a quite political origin. Um, in terms of places, other places in the world, some, some places celebrate Mother's Day in conjunction with International Women's Day, which again also has um, a quite political history, which comes from some of uh, Russian uh, women workers' battles over labor practices, right? Um, but I think that there is, um, I think there can be some issues around conflating 
Mother's Day with Women's Day um, or International Women's Day because obviously not all women are mothers. Um, but I think, it, you know, I think it makes sense for some people to do so. And obviously all around the world people have different traditions of celebrating mothers. Um, I think for us in our context as, as African people, um, you know, I, I think there are many things to say about this. I think the first is that mothers, I think, if, even if not always valued in the ways that they should, I do think that mothers sort of socially hold a particular kind of importance um, in African black communities um, around the world. I think we have traditionally an understanding of the sort of importance of family um, and the continuity of struggle. But I also think that even beyond biological mothers, I think we have an understanding of the role that women play in the processes of mothering. And I would say mothering as bringing, sort of bringing things to life, um, ushering things through. And that could be human beings, but that could also be revolutions. Um, and so I think for us, I think it's important for us to always sort of think about where we are as a people and where we want to go and what role women and 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 mothering plays in that process. You know, Layla, when we look at the reality of how this society functions, one will ask, ask the question, do we really value mothers? And if not, why not? <laughs> I mean, I think, and obviously in this society, I mean, I don't, we don't value people in this society. So I think um, the question, that, that answer to that question, do we value mothers, um, is an easy follow-up to that, is that no, right? Um, and that's because we live in a capitalist society and that, and that human beings and quality of life um, and sort of human social interaction is not, I think, at the center of of the sort of political um, imaginative preoccupations of this country. This country is designed. This country and sort of capitalist countries all over the world are designed to exploit labor. Um, and I think that um, maternal labor or reproductive labor is among the most exploited globally. Um, one of the there's a woman, um, so I, I do, I've done a lot of research in um, Venezuela um, in the sort of Bolivarian Revolution, and there's a woman named Argelia Laya. Argelia was born in the early 1900s, and she died in the late 1990s. She was an Afro-Venezuelan woman, a member of the Communist Party, um, a prominent, she was a guerrilla fighter, a prominent leader in the women's movement and the Afro-descendant movement in the country. Um, and there's a book of her sort of public declarations and speeches, um, and one of her um, – so she – so what I'll say about her is that she was a teacher, um, and she was raped um, as a young woman. She was, I think, about 19, um, and she became pregnant, and she refused to give up the child. So she refused to abort the child, and as a result, she lost her job um, as a teacher. And this really, um, her, her parents were actually already politically active, but losing her job as a result of her decision to become a mother really sort of um, catalyzed her political activism in the Venezuelan context. 
Um, and one of the things that she's noted for saying is that the condition of second and even third class citizens suffered by women in Venezuela, and I would broaden this, you know, to the rest of the world, in education, in paid work, and in the family is a problem due to the degree of the socio-psychological dependence that is expressed in the mother-child relationship in almost three-quarters of Venezuelans, whose education rests almost exclusively on the responsibility of the mother with little or no participation of the father. Um, and one of the arguments that she's making there, I think she's making there, is that um, if we understand that our children are here to be sort of a, a possibility for a future, a possibility for hope, that we have to, and we have to fully sort of invest in them um, in the future. And that when, when that responsibility predominantly rests on women and not on society as a whole, let alone, you know, the men who help father them, that burden, um, while perhaps welcome can be become an undue burden on women, right? Because it's not equally shared. And I think that that, that burden can be shared by people who, who co-parent, I mean, sorry, who father the children, and it can also be shared by society. Um, and when we don't have systems in place that support the rearing of children, whether that be in the nuclear family or in the larger society um, as a whole, then obviously we are not valuing the work the labor and the reproductive labor of women as mothers. Talking about the reproductive aspect of women as this question and the question of labor, I'm just wondering in terms of what do you think about recently of the idea of the U.S. Supreme Court talking about reversing Roe hmm. versus Wade in terms of making it difficult for women to get abortion? They're taking that particular choice hmm. out of their hand. Is this another reflection uh, how this society that this, they just totally disrespect women as a part of this mm -hmm. woman oppression that we historically have mm -hmm. seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously the 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 ability to have the right to choose whether or not you have a child, um, and I and I don't personally believe that should be limited to when a person when a woman is raped or. Um, if it, I think the two conditions that they're contemplating still allowing abortion are when the child, when the fetus is a product of rape, and or if the fetus um, represents a mortal harm to the mother. Um, but I think even beyond those conditions, we know that the condition of motherhood is is a very important one and requires a lot of work. And to make a decision, or and to not have the right to make a decision about when and how you have a child um, is, I think, a, a fundamental um, violation of a, of a human right. I think, you know, I was, I was actually doing some calculations. So I live in the state of Massachusetts, which is the most expensive state in the country for child care. Um, and so I was doing, I used like this sort of baby calculator just to see what would, what would life what would the first year of a child's life cost? And this is not including hospital costs, um, post, um, what do you call it, like uh, doulas or anything like that, um, or even prenatal care. This is just the first year of the child's life. And the estimate was around $30,000 a year. Um, and that child care comes in around, averaging around $20,000 a year in the state of Massachusetts. 
for most people in this country, that is their entire annual salary. And so when a person, when a woman makes a decision to say, maybe, maybe they would even, under different circumstances, have a child, um, but when they understand that the conditions of their life don't permit them to give a child a, a full um, and realized life, I think we should be able to have the right to make those types of decisions. Similarly, I think even without all those justifications, if a person has no desire to be a parent, I think we're all better off for them not being a parent um, because I think it's a it's a serious decision and undertaking to take on the, the responsibility and the role of, of bringing life into the world and, and bringing it up in the world in a particular kind of way. And so, you know, obviously the decision to reverse um, the, the legality of abortion is problematic, um, not least of which is because at no point in time, whether when, when abortions have been legal or illegal, have women stopped having abortions. And more like more often than not, what happens when abortions are made illegal is that women go and go to sort of extra legal, go through extra legal means to have abortions, um, and that typically wealthy women will still continue to have access to abortions in private clinics. And so now, what we know is that when abortions are made illegal, it is a direct threat to the lives of poor Black and Brown immigrant women because it is those women who will not have the financial ability to seek a safe and affordable abortion. And so not only will we see um, abortions increase, but we'll actually see women's uh, death rates increase because um, safe abortion, I mean, abortion is a relatively safe procedure um, because there are options for what they call medical abortions, which is uh, through pills, and then there are surgical abortions up to a certain point. Um, but the science around abortions has developed, you know, quite well, and they're quite safe procedures. But when they are made illegal and people are doing them in unsafe, unsanitary conditions, more black and brown women are likely to die. And so we also need to see the reversal of the Roe versus Wade decision as a direct attack on African women's lives in this country. You know, Lena. Earlier you said that um, this whole concept of Mother Day really started out being political, and you mentioned uh, some of the wives and mothers of the Confederacy felt a strong need to, to have some free time with the family, some time where everyone should be together. Now, I notice if you take a look at that, one would probably argue if you look at the history in this society and throughout the world that when we talk about this concept of mothers, there are different levels to it. And I would just like to just get your response just to this basic question, which probably seems obvious, is that are African mothers less value than other mothers? So there are so many. I mean, obviously, yes. Um, and, again, that's by virtue of our devalued position as African people in general um, because of these histories of, um, enslavement, colonization, dispossession, poverty. Um, but, you know, and I think an interesting way of, of answering that or thinking about that is to think about the condition of enslaved African women in the, in the U.S. context, right? Um, and so in the context of enslavement in the U.S., we know that um, women were – 
whether they were in, engaged in voluntary relationships with other enslaved men um, excuse me, or raped by their white enslavers, we know that because of womb laws in this country, the child, a child born to a white man and enslaved woman was, was doomed to enslavement in perpetuity. Um, and, that, and that was not the case for a child born to an, a white woman and an enslaved man, although the, the um, statistics around that are sketchy because obviously that wouldn't have been reported at the same, they wouldn't have been seen at the same rate. Um, but what we also know is that um, in spite of, uh, sorry, what we also know is that the institution of, of slavery disallowed for a particular kind of autonomy and control and self-determination for mothers, for enslaved mothers and black mothers in particular. Um, but what that also represented is, what that also permitted were these kind of extended ways of doing kinship um, in the, in the, I, and I, I think that this is not this is not just a result of the of the system of enslavement. I think that there is um, sufficient research out there to show that as African people, we have a a long history of having um, kinship structures and relationships that go beyond the sort of bourgeois notion of the nuclear family that is the mother, father, and kids. Um, and we know that we have these traditions of acknowledging aunties, grandmothers, and even non-biological, um, non-biologically related women as important, sorry, and not just women, but people, as important to our kinship structures. Um, but, but even beyond that, we have to consider what must it have been like as an enslaved woman to give birth to a child that you have no no um, sense of control over where their life is going to go, or if or if you can even keep them close to you, and I think one of the um, most well known examples of this is um, so we see it in pop culture in the story of Beloved, um, which was written by Toni Morrison. Um, but what some people may or may not know is that the story of Beloved was actually inspired by a true story, um, and it was the story of a woman named Margaret Garner. Margaret Garner was enslaved in Kentucky in the mid-1800s. Um, in 1856, just six years after the Fugitive Slave Act was, was passed, she was pregnant with her fourth child. And the story is that um, she was married to a, an enslaved man, but the belief is that all of her children were, quote-unquote, mulatto children, which means they had a white father, which likely means that they, she was raped by her white enslaver, and these children were the, were the you know, the what do you call it, the offspring mm -hmm. of a white slave man. Anyway, um, so there was this sort of mass, cons mass conspiracy for um, there were several families on, on that plantation and in the nearby area that decided to escape. And so they were escaping from Kentucky to Cincinnati. Um, a number of them were able to successfully escape, but Garner, Margaret Garner, her husband, and her children were surrounded by slave catchers um, and in this, in the instance where they were surrounded by slave catchers, somehow her um, her husband at the time managed to have a gun, and so he was trying to sort of fend them off. And in the time that he was trying to fend off the enslavers, Margaret Garner slits the throat of her two-year-old daughter, and she injures her other two children in her attempt to kill them. 
and what what we see in this, what we see in the story of Beloved is this kind of attempt to reckon with what it means to have killed one's own child. But in the but beyond that, what we see in Margaret Garner's sort of um, desperation is that she would rather her children die than to go back into the institution of slavery. And we have to think about what type of decision that that is for a mother. And I think that that and that's not exclusive, I think, to enslaved women. I think um, it's even relative, relevant to the conversation we're having about abortion. I think a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm 35 years old. I'm technically of childbearing age. And I think a lot of my peers, based on the current conditions of life, a lot of them are asking, what does it mean to bring a child into the world under these current conditions? And, you know, do I have not just the the sort of desire, but do I have the means, like, to bring them into this? And then what am I subjecting them to if I make the decision to do that? And I think that this is a decision that all too many, you know, um, oppressed women, whether they're enslaved or colonized or um, imprisoned or uh, dispossessed in other kinds of ways, they're, 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 they're strapped with that decision. Um, and so, I, you know, I think this is this is something that is constantly, I think, in the in play for African women as we're thinking about what it means to be mother, even even as the position of mother is socially quite, you know, celebrated and venerated. Um, there's one; it's one thing to sort of celebrate that in a kind of public way, and then there's this kind of, I think quiet, long-suffering um, that a lot of that a lot of us, and I, I shouldn't say us because I'm not a mother myself, um, but that a lot of um, black, African, indigenous, uh, Latino, brown women who are mothers are struggling with. Okay. Now, you know, when we talk about this concept of mothers, uh, when you conceive of this concept, what is your criteria? What makes up a mother? Yeah, so I mean, I I think this is interesting um, in a lot of different ways. So I mean, obviously, in a, in the most basic sense, well, actually, I wouldn't even say that because there are women who give birth to children who um, make a decision, either make a decision or are unable. Um, to mother, right? And so there is the biological act of giving birth to a child um, that is a part of what it means to be a mother. But I also think that beyond that, to mother is to nurture, is to care for, is to is to sort of bring forth and realize. And I think that, again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but there are ways that we mother people and there are ways that we mother ideas and there are ways that we mother movements and revolutions and all of those things. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, because we have these extended ways of doing kinship, I think that it's clear that, you know, as African people, we don't we don't understand our biological mothers to be our only mothers, right? And I mean, you know, for many of us, our, our grandmothers or our big mamas or whatever, um, are very play better, very critical roles. Um, again, because of the sort of socioeconomic conditions of life, there are many conditions where those grandmothers or aunts 
or other women in the family or other women friends of the family end up taking on the role and responsibility of taking care of children. Um, but I also think that, that mothering, I think oftentimes we limit mothering to the kind of for, what, they, what they call formative years. Um, but, I, you know, mothering continues in all kinds of ways. And as, and as a person, as a woman who lost my mother as an adult, um, you know, there are, that, that's a hole that, is, that has remained unsealed. Um, and there are other women in my life who, who play a role, a mothering role, but we never stop needing mothering, right? We never stop needing nurturing and care and understanding um, and, and ways to sort of realize our full selves, whatever that might be. And so I think that, you know, teachers, play mother, you know, women teachers play mothering roles. Um, there are people who who never give birth to children and may not even be the sole or primary caregivers of people, but who play mothering roles in their communities. Um, there's a sociologist, Patricia Hill Collins, she talks about this. Um, she says there are mothers, there are other mothers, and there are community mothers. And, and she's talking about this specifically in the context of, you know, black African communities in, in the U.S. in particular, but I, I would extend that, you know, sort of broader, that we do have these ways of understanding our sort of communal responsibility to one another. And I think more often than not, women end up taking up that role and, and engage in a process of mothering. And so I think that we have to extend the way we understand mothering and motherhood to be beyond sort of just the act of giving birth to a child. And, and I think that's a very important point because, you know, often we, we, we have these discussions and we talk about these concepts of families. And from my understanding, mm-hmm. there are only two types of families. There's your biological family, and then there's your ideological family. And um, mm-hmm. even if biologically you may be physically, you know, came from that particular tree, but because of your way of thinking and values and principles that you take in, a lot of times that cause you to take a different, a different look, a different understanding, a different um, positions that may put you in contrary to the interests of one who may have been biologically akin to you. So I'm saying all that mm-hmm. because I think that when we talk about families and mothers, it's important to understand that um, this question of mothering, like you said, is very important because um, people seem to gravitate towards those things that people have done for them, those things that people uh, feel like they have a sense of belonging and people care about you. And so when we talk about Mother's Day, I think we need to get out of this sense of a been limited to looking at mother, you know, mothering or being a mother just from a biological point of view. Because I used to travel mm-hmm. with a friend of mine, and we used to joke with him all, joke with him all the time. Everywhere we go, first thing he said, that's my mama right there, brother. That's my mama right there. Then we go somewhere, <laughs> that's my mama. That's my mama right there. And we asked a man, dog, how many mothers do you have? I got a lot of mothers. Now, mm-hmm. culturally speaking, when we ask outside of our community, how can it be so? And you sort of alluded to that. So um, I just thought that would be really interesting in terms of um, the whole concept of mothering. I think if we're going to take on the concept, we need to realize it comes in different forms, like you like you alluded to. But let's let's continue the discussion in terms of. Uh, 
your response, go ahead. No, just because I because I, I think that we do we do have that as a general practice, right? And that and that even when even women who maybe aren't even who aren't our mothers or aren't even primarily responsible for us, but that that title of mama, right? I think there's two titles that we use to bestow that kind of respect on women. Um, and to establish a, a familial type of connection, which is mama and auntie, right? And so, you know, we, we do that, right? Like when we're friends, when, when we meet our close friends' mothers, you know, uh, we have a practice of calling them mama so-and-so or whoever, right? And I think that for us it is because we do have at least um, a general understanding of the importance of the role of mother and 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 that in and the importance of that in our own lives right and so i do think that you know i just i just wanted to call out that as a practice that i think we engage in across the board you know later on i ask you to go into your anthropology bag sociological <laughs> bag in terms of this particular question and point of view that i can raise with you and the concept of when we talk about mothering or being a mother what is the criteria of a good mother versus a bad mother? What goes into um, your thinking of making such a judgment value, such a judgment value of someone? And we often do that. But I never understood that. I never understood that concept because how do you make decisions without looking at how the environment may have impacted on the very degrees of, of, of mothers? But your response yeah. to how do you redefine what is a good mother and a bad mother? Is it such thing as a good mother and a bad mother? This this is this is hard, I think, for me. Um I, I, I do think there are bad mothers. And and for me, bad mothers is obviously I mean, the sort of easy way to to think about a bad mother is an abusive mother. I mean, I think that that's the under under you know, that's understood full stop, I think, without necessary qualifications. Um, but good mothers, I, I think that that's relative to so many things. Um, I think it, it does sort of depend on your sort of ideological position in the world and what you understand to be important. Um, I do think that mothering requires an inclination towards nurturing that can look different in different people. Um, and I think, you know, and I also think that if, this is a tricky one because I think that when we think about mothering as a sort of political responsibility, we do want to think about what it means to raise our children with a particular understanding of the world, with a particular kind of fighting spirit, with a desire to see them create something better. But I think that there's also a delicate balance between that and allowing children a level of autonomy to figure out what their own, you know, paths are. Um, Alexis Pauline Gums, uh, she's a black, queer, feminist um, activist scholar here in the North Carolina area. She has this book called Revolutionary Mothering Love on the Front Lines, and it's largely about uh, black queer mothering. But one of the things that she talks about um, in her understanding of mothering is that mothering is is a process, but it's not, you know, it's not just a process, but it's a process that 
shaped both parent and child, right? Um, and that, you know, mothers who unlearn domination, you know, in this society that is, is so dominating, by refusing to dominate their own children, they're engaged in a particular kind of revolutionary practice, right? And so, and, and the reason why I say that this whole, you know, what makes a good mother and a bad mother is complicated, right, is because one of the things that we know about the way, in general, I think, um, black children in the U.S., and I think this is true of um, enslaved, colonized, oppressed children in general, is that because we know um, the dangers of the society that we exist in, in a lot of ways we limit the imaginative capacity of our children because of our own rational, real, very real fears um, about what the world is, um, but that sometimes that can be to their own detriment, right? And this is and this comes up in questions of corporal punishment, right? Whether or not we spank our children, how we talk to our children, you know, whether or not we yell at our children or cuss at our children, or all of these things, and all of these things are factors of our own sort of um, psychological, mental unwell-being because we live in a society that doesn't allow us to be well, right? And so I don't want to condemn people who are trying to figure out their own place in the world and who have, you know, found themselves in the, in the situation of raising children or nurturing children, um, because it is a difficult one to engage in. And I think, again, I, I have not parented my own children, but I've thought and talked a lot to people about this. And everybody that I know who is a parent all talk about the fact that you know, you it's it's a what do you call it? Um, you know, you start kind of flying by the seat of your pants, like you're figuring out as you go. You're never ready to have a child, um, and you know, you never know what it's gonna throw at you. And you do your best, right? And and you do your best to learn lessons from other people um, and from your own life. And so, you know, I think good parents, good mothers in general, um, are attempting to provide a safe environment as safe as they can within their own sort of limited capacity um, to see their their child grow, to see their in intellectual and creative capacity develop, and to figure out who they want to be. Um, but, you know, that's obviously limited very much by the world, the sort of capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal, you know, dominating world that we live in that doesn't always make that possible. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of ways that we're thinking through, you know, what it means to to not, you know, prematurely limit our children's freedom um, and, and what it means to, to, to parent or mother pre-black children, right? And obviously to be free is controversial in, in this uh, in this context, but, you know, we, we have to do this sort of delicate balance of thinking about what the real world encounters and implications and barriers to our children's well-being are, and how much of that do we impose on them ourselves and our own households, and how much of that do we prepare them for but not limit them by? You, you, know, you know, later, oftentimes when we talk about mothering and looking at the mother. Um, sometimes I think they get fair criticism based upon the performance of their children or their child. Is it possible or is it fair if a child does something bad or he, he grows up and don't be responsible? 
Could we totally put that blame on their mother and say she the one responsible for the child being bad? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, as people, uh, we are shaped by a myriad of influences. Um, you know, based on the, the societal structure of the United States, people, most people work at least eight hours a day. The vast majority of people work more than eight hours a day. Um, we send our children to school eight hours a day. There's 24 hours in a day, which are um, three eight-hour blocks. So our kids are at school for eight hours. Presumably we're sleeping for somewhere around eight hours. And so best-case scenario, parents have access to their children for a third of every day, right? Um, and mm-hmm. And that's not including television time and friends and other you know, other kinds of influences. And so I think, and, and, and I think that, that that's also why I think I'm hesitant to talk about, you know, what a bad mother or bad parent is because as much, you know, despite your best efforts, you, we don't, we don't live in, in, in a vacuum. We don't live in a bubble. Um, and there are always external influences. I mean, I think <laughs> this is an interesting um, comparison, but I think even, when we think about Cuba as a country, right, one of the things that we've seen over the generations, so, you know, how they study sort of um, generational responses to sort of post-revolutionary life, that first generation um, who experienced the revolution, who experienced life under the pre-revolution, you know, has a much stronger commitment to the to continuing the Cuban Revolution, right? And even that second generation has a fairly strong one. But that third generation has come along in the era of, you know, Internet and the mass movement of, you know, um, ideas. And they're, you know, very subject to the kind of hegemonic powerhouse that is the U.S. and that gets to sort of send these images of what life is like in the U.S., and that, in a lot of instances, has weakened the resolve of the, of the third and subsequent generations of Cubans. Um, obviously, that's not the only thing. But because of the blockade, because of sort of all of the sort of political implications of what it means to be a country fighting for socialism in a world dominated by capitalism, these ideas, you know, continue to seep in. And if, and if we don't have... Um, you know, very sort of intentional political education to counter those things, um, you know, those ideas can take over. And I think that that's true of parenting. There, there is only so much you can do to plant ideas um, about how to be and exist in the world in a person because we are autonomous beings and we make good and bad decisions um, that we think maybe are or are not in our interest. And so I, I don't think it's ever the case. Um, even even a bad parent, I don't think it's ever the case that it's solely the responsibility of a parent how a person turns out in the world because there are bad parents who turn out wonderful people in the world, and there are good parents who turn out shitty people in the world. And so, you know, that's a, a complicated, you know, conundrum. You know, this leads to my next point, and I want you to extrapolate a little bit um, on this issue. If a country of a political foundation, a political system foundation, is based upon being in violation of human rights, origin, is it capable for that country to see mothers as something to be valued 
and respected? Yeah, I mean, this goes back, I think, to the first question that you asked. And my answer to that would be no, I don't think so. Not as a country. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, as people inside of this country, we have the ability to have differing, divergent perspectives. But the country, the structures of the society, no, I don't I don't think that they can value mothers because it, it's just another um, – it's just another labor practice to be exploited, right? It's just another, you know, essentially mothers, I mean, I mean, it's the same way, you know, enslaved women were understood, right? I mean, you know, they were understood to be creating new generations of, of enslaved labor. That's essentially what they're doing. And, and that's true for us. I mean, in this country, you know, we have what they call the school-to-prison pipeline, um, you know, one of the things that I, I recognized very early on in the school systems in this country is that, you know, they, they track students, and they track students very early on um, based on a number of things, right, based on uh, placing them in special education programs, um, based on so-called academic performance, but they start doing this in elementary school. And a part of what they're doing is guaranteeing that certain people will be produced for an exploited labor class, right? I mean, that's that's literally what this country does. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the mothers themselves are often being exploited, both as mothers and as general laborers. Um, and so, yeah, the, generally, the answer to your question is no. I don't I don't believe this country has the capacity to value mothers, um, let alone people, human life in general. Well, at this point in time, you're listening to Professor Leah Brown. She's an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolution by GC. We're discussing this concept called Mother Day. Our theme is a tribute to moms, mothers of the masses. We're going to take a revolutionary break, and when we come back, we will continue the discussion, and we will open up our mic a little later on. So you, the listening audience, can come in and participate with us as we talk about this whole issue of Mother's Day, what it is, and hopefully we'll find a way to how we can at least put more respect on this concept of, of mothers. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon, and this song is a reflection of what a mother would do. Uh-huh. 
say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Well, for your information, a lot of my brothers got education. Now check it, you got your Wall Street brother, your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever, chilling on the corner, brother. You're talented brother, and to every one of y'all behind bars, you know that Angel loves you. Oh, my
That's right. Don't be no buffalo soldier. We'll fight upon our rival and fighting for our survival. See the living that legacy. Today we're doing a tribute to Mother Day. A tribute to moms, mother of the masses. We'd like to say happy Mother Day to all the mothers throughout the world. And we have a special guest with us today, Professor Layla Brown. She's an anthropologist. Um, she's a culture anthropologist. She's uh, also is a social professor um, in the field of sociology and anthropology. Um, she's worked at the University of Northeastern University, and she's an organizer, a political organizer, a pan-Africanist for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. She's going to put some respect back into this concept of Mother's and Mother's Day. We are very honored to have her, and we would like to continue the discussion, and later on, we're going to open up the phone lines, and if you would like to have any comments or questions to um, address to Professor Layla, you can do so by calling 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four number. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Um, Professor Brown, when you look at little girls who do not no longer look forward to wanting to be a mother today versus more than um, those who who came before them, is this a good thing or a bad thing? What sociological impact does this attitude um, have on a group, on a people, on a nation? You know, back in the day, Many young ladies look proud and look forward to maybe becoming a mother because they saw it as a good thing. But today, a lot of young ladies, little girls, they don't have a good image of um, being a mother. So um, uh, what do you say to that, 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 that particular dynamic that has taken place now in terms of the loss of respect of little girls not appreciating this whole development of becoming a mother? I don't think it's uh, uh, what do you call it, explicitly good or bad thing. Um, I think it is largely a product of um, paying attention to historical circumstances. I think that what and actually I don't I don't I mean okay so in general there are birth rates are slightly declining. I mean they're mostly declining among white people in this country, Um, but among Black and brown people, birth rates are not dropping precipitously. Marriage is a different thing. I don't want to talk about marriage. Um, But what's happening is that women across the board are having children later in life. Um, And so I don't necessarily know that, um, one, one, I don't think anyone should be shamed um, for their decision to not become a parent um, because I think, if anything, I think in some cases that can be seen as a, very, a quite responsible decision um, because I think, you know, to to understand what it takes to become a parent, become a mother, um, and to and to say you're not ready for that I think is a, is an important and, and mature and self-reflective thing to be able to do. Um, but we also know that it is in, in many instances the the condition of motherhood that 
disallowed a number of women a particular kind of personal autonomy um, historically, right? Like, um, and so, and particularly motherhood at a certain point, right? And so making a decision to wait until you finish school or you have a job or you're able to financially care for your child, I think is, is a responsible decision. Um, you know, I think there are some people, there are plenty of people who ha- having children that shouldn't be having children. Um, so I don't, I don't see that um, in a particularly like good or bad way across the board. I think it just depends on the condition and circumstance. Um, but again, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, when a woman is, um, you know, like my father's generation, my grandmother had 13 children. Um, and what it means to have that number of children um, for your ability to kind of have your own self-actualization um, and maybe even your own forms of po- political per- engagement and participation, depending on what type of support networks you have. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, that that decision should be taken lightly or condemned when people make a decision not to. You know, Professor Brown, in order to really have a great appreciation for this concept of Mother Day, I think one needs to become aware of the value that our mother or mothers have to a society. And you speak of some of the values that mothers bring to a society that is, that is important? For sure. Um, you know, even speaking on the, the, the particularity of, of Mother's Day, you know, we also have to think about the fact that as commercial of a holiday as, as Mother's Day is, it's also been used, even even in contemporary times, you know, Coretta Scott King utilized Mother's Day um, to galvanize women, um, women and children politically um, in, the, in the sort of wake of King's assassination, right? And so the occasion of Mother's Day, when we think about what it means to be mothers, um, and African mothers in particular in this country, I think has has occasion thinking about um, our our political predicament in this country. And so I don't, you know, I also just do want to acknowledge the fact that in spite of commercial observation, that there are, there are ways historically that we have, um, I think, taken the charge of Mother's Day as something to to think and reflect on on our predicament. Um, I also think that it's important to think about the what what motherhood represents in terms of possibility, right? So when we, I mean, I think, you know, I can't think of a of a radical revolutionary African leader who did not sort of invoke the importance of the education of women, um, the the development of skills among women, um, again because because regardless of how people feel about it, women remain primarily the child care givers in the world. And so because of that, women remain the sort of first line of of contact with children. And so women are really um, responsible in a lot of ways for how society develops across generations. I mean, I think, you know, in some instances, even though I just mentioned that in some ways motherhood can limit um, certain types of freedoms of women. We also have to think about motherhood and its sort of revolutionary capacities, right? Because, you know, 
for a lot of women, motherhood is the precisely the place where they they develop political identities, and it is it is through the process of advocating for their children that many women become politically active and engaged. Um, uh, uh, she's an academic and an activist, Melina Abdullah. She um, writes about, you know, womanist black activist mothering, and she says that rather than inhibiting rebellion, motherhood has strengthened our resolve, for our resistance was not for our survival alone, but for the legacy that our children would inherit. In birthing children, we have always understood that we are also birthing hope, birthing birthing possibility, and birthing the promise of revolution. Motherhood inarguably shapes the ways one interacts with power structures. It mediates relationships with social, economic, and political structures and shapes ideology. In turn, one's worldview intervenes in the mothering process. Um, And I think that it's important to think about the the dual nature of motherhood, right? Like even, you know, not not being in a sort of economic position to, to provide your child always the sort of best conditions can be frustrating and can be, it can be emotionally and psychologically debilitating in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But in spite of all of those things, it, it is for a lot of women precisely the place where they, where they develop their own fight. Um, and there are, places and um, moments where, you know, we're not willing to do certain things for ourselves, but when we bring another person into the world or when we were responsible, even when we don't birth them, but when we are responsible for another person in the world, we know that we have to fight that much harder, that much different. And so a lot of women are, you know, politically um, activated through their struggles over their children, of the, the way their children are treated in school, um, you know, not least of which, so my, my mentor um, recently formed the North Carolina Black Disabilities Network. She's a mother of four sons, and her oldest and her youngest son are on the autism spectrum. Um, her oldest, I believe, is 24 now, and the youngest, I think, is 12. And over the course of the life of her son, you know, as, and she's a, she has a PhD, she's a well-educated married, you know, employed woman, and, you know, she talks about even her struggles to um, make sure that her child who was, you know, who was diagnosed with autism was treated like a full human being, and that led to her creating an entire organization to advocate for other uh, black families and children with disabilities, right, and so I I do think we have to think about the, revo- the revolutionary and radical potential that motherhood brings, um, and what it because there's so much I think in that comes with what it means to be responsible for another person's life, and that there's so much more we are willing to do and engage in for others. I think often than we're even willing to do for ourselves, and so I think that's a very sort of critical um, understanding of motherhood. Um, but I, but I also think that there also has to be room for mothers to be something other than mother, right? Like it can't be the entire identity. And I think that that's important to the people that they're responsible for, that women are able to be whole beings outside of being mothers. Um, One of my favorite quotes is by Leila Khaled, who was, she is, she's alive. Um, She's a Palestinian woman who was a member of the Palestinian Front for uh, it's the PSLP. 
um, I'm forgetting what the acronym stands for at the moment, but one of the things she says, and so, oh, what's important, not, it's not the only thing that's important about her, but Leila Khaled, who's actually the woman I was named after, um, she is known for being the first woman to hijack a plane um, as an as a, as a act of political defiance for the PFLP. Um, but one of the things she says is that I've learned that a woman can be a fighter, a freedom fighter, a political activist, that she can fall in love and be loved. She can be married, have children, mm. and be a mother. Revolution must also <laughs> mean life, every aspect of life. And so I think that, you know, when Sister, I when, can I stop you, you know, for a second? Can I stop you? Go ahead. Can I stop you for a second? For a second, get you to stake that, make that statement again. That's very powerful. Okay. She said, I have learned that a woman can be a fighter, a freedom fighter, a political activist, and that she can fall in love and be loved. She can be married, have children, and be a mother. Revolution must also mean life, every aspect of life. And for me, Mm. um, what I take from that is that, you know, even as she, you know, made sacrifices, she's also a mother, she made sacrifices that could have taken her life away. Um, but that she also understood that to be a person in the world, you deserve to have all these things, um, and that that's really what the sort of full, what that's what self-actualization is. It's not about these sort of, um, you know, bourgeois notions of starting a business or, you know, whatever these other things are, but to to be able to enjoy the all of the many things that it means to be alive, and that and that as human beings we're social creatures, and so that we we live and we live and we exist to engage with one another, and that means love, and that means you know creating offspring, and that means fighting, and that that means all of these things. That means struggling, um, and you know I think another interesting um, example and take on motherhood, and particularly in these sort of struggle. Well, there's two of them. The first is um, the, is, you know, we're, we, people often evoke these images of Eritrean women um, when they were battling for Eritrean independence. Um, and, you know, recently within the party, we were having a discussion. We were talking about um, the state of women, but we watched this documentary about the women fighters um, in the, what is it, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Um, and one of the, the things that the women who were engaged in, who were actually engaged in the battle, so like they were, they were warriors, they were soldiers, you know, on the battlefield, a number of them said that they felt like when they were on the battlefield, to become pregnant was a betrayal to the struggle, Right. Um, to have children at that time took them out of play um, and, and made their other, you know, their other, uh, their fellow soldiers vulnerable because, you know, they were down, you know, woman power, body power. Um, but what's interesting uh, is that, you know, a number of those women did get pregnant, you know, while they were, you know, in battle and war. Um, many of them, they, they created camps where the women could care for their children. They didn't necessarily always go back to, what do you call it, civilian society. But many of those women didn't have children. And a lot of those women um, in the documentary, they were reflecting on what it meant for them to have had or not have had children 
in the wake of the success of the Eritrean struggle. And a lot of those women who didn't have children, you know, they talk about the fact that because motherhood is so um, intertwined with womanhood um, and because they spent their prime sort of child-rearing years as soldiers, really their their being is kind of called into question later on because in society, in, you know, in the Eritrean society, to not be a mother is essentially to not be a woman. And so these are things that, you know, I think we have to question and challenge because in a lot of ways their, their, their battle on the field birthed the Eritrean nation. And so they are mothers in a different way. Um, but then when they have to return to civilian life um, after the fact, they, you know, were no longer marriageable in a lot of instances. Um and are kind of doomed, you know, to live, low, you know, sol- uh, what do you call it, solitary lives because of their inability to be mothers and, and or wives in the, after, in the aftermath of the liberation struggles. And so these are notions, I think, of, of womanhood that we, that we do have to challenge as important as motherhood is. Um, but I also think, you know, Palestinian mothers are, you know, um, are in an interesting predicament. Um, I think I was reading something, you know, there are always these interesting condemnations that um, liberal, right-wing people in the West launch against Palestinian women. They try to attack them on, on the basis of their motherhood by saying, you know, what kind of mother would send their, their um, child to confront Israeli soldiers? Um, or send them, you know, send them, put them in the face of danger. And, you know, this is such a reactionary question to ask because the, the, the conditions of life for a Palestinian in Palestine is, is constant danger, no matter who they are, right? And so, you know, we think about, um, you know, I think this is, this is from an article, I think, in 2016 that said, as Palestinians celebrate the occasion of Mother's Day, 13 Palestinian mothers held in Israeli prisons and detention centers are unable to see their families. Palestinian mothers are often denied their right to a fair trial, family visits, and kept for several days or months under interrogation where they are subjected to torture and ill treatment. The methods of torture and ill treatment used against Palestinian mothers inside Israeli prisons cause severe physical and mental suffering. Interrogation methods include prolonged isolation from the outside world, inhumane detention conditions, excessive use of blindfolds and handcuffs, sleep deprivation, denial of food and water for extended periods of time, denial of proper medical treatment, denial of access to toilets, to showers, to change clothes for days or weeks, uh, being forced into stressful conditions, yelling, insults, cursing, sexual harassment, you know, all these, all these things, right? Um, and, you know, I think the, the Palestinian example is, is, is a glaring one. And I think, you know, we even see it on a smaller scale here in, in the States. I mean, before my mother passed, she was supervising imprisoned women's visits with their children. And, you know, what I, what I can understand, you know, from my mother's decision to do that is that there is such an important connection between a mother and a child and, you know, what people may or may not know is that more often than not, black women, poor women in this country are imprisoned for petty financial crimes, things like writing bad checks, um, 
what, what is it called, uh, welfare fraud, those types of things, the types of crimes that they're engaging in in order to be good mothers, right, in order to feed their children. And so because they're engaging in these sort of petty financial crimes, they're deprived of their relationship to their children, and then their children suffer these sort of multi-generational traumas of absent parents, right? And so, you know, my mother's decision to try to supervise um, visits, I think, is, you know, was an under, her own understanding of that sort of important bond and what it means for us as people to be denied those bonds. So I, just, I think that, you know, there, there are so many um, complicated ways that um, people are disallowed to engage in the practice of mothering um, and then and still attempt to do it anyway in spite of all of that. You know, Professor Brown, looking at the value of uh, the value of mothers in the society, I'll ask you this question. I want you deeply think about this, and that is: Should there be some fight and some pay for mothers on a monthly basis, just for being a mother? I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um... This is another one where I will bring in examples of Venezuela. Now, now I know you're asking. I, I, I'm going to imagine that you're asking even beyond what we think about as sort of maternity care leave. But so, like even for me, I am in probably a better. I am. I'm not probably. I am in a better position than most people. Right. I work as a professor at a university. I have a relatively flexible schedule. Um, if I were to have a child, I would be entitled to eight months, I mean, sorry, not months, eight weeks of, of leave um, as maternity leave. And I think um, that, that, that is paternity leave that, that, would, um, that would go to both parents, either parent, um, at 100% of pay and then an additional four weeks at, at uh, 80% pay. But that's, that is among some of the better conditions for what it means in early life. And so basically this society has said that you can take 12, a maximum of 12 weeks off of work to nurture with your child when you first have 12 weeks, three months. Like that is nothing in the scope or span of a life, right? Um, and again, again, I, I mentioned that um, child child care is, I think, the – I think it, I believe it rivals um, housing costs. Um, it is when pe- when a, when people have children, housing and childcare are the are the sort of primary, um, you know, what do you call it? Things eating at their bank account. Um, Venezuela has one of the most comprehensive maternity programs. Um, I know in the in the Americas, um, perhaps. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make the claim broader than that. But I know in the Americas, um, and part of that has come out of a struggle that that poor Black and Brown women in Venezuela have been get, have been engaging in um, to get motherhood or maternity um, determined. It, it's it's work. It's labor, and that is whether you are a stay-at-home mother or a quote-unquote working outside of the home mother. Because what we also know is that whether women work outside of the home or stay at home, whether they are in partnered relationships or not, the vast majority of child care responsibilities across the board, across the world, 
still falls upon women. Um, and that and that women tend to still be penalized for that. Women more often than men are penalized um, at work when they make decisions to take off or have to leave because of a sick child or because a child needs something um, at a disproportionate rate than men are. Um, and that it is, like, it, it is something that, at a minimum, you're responsible for the care of, it, of, an, of a whole entire other person for at least 18 years. And what we also know is that in most, in the U.S., in black and brown families, and I think across the world, the developing world, the, the, that parent-child relationship, it, it doesn't stop at 18. In fact, we are among the minority in the world who believe as a society that children are adults and go on on their own at 18, whereas in other places in the world, people get married and continue to live in their familial homes, right, because of their because of different understandings of sociality and ways of relating to one another. Um, and so, you know, absolutely, I, I, I do believe that if we understand child rearing to be an essential function of society, it needs to be valued as such. Professor Brown, you know, um, today mothers have very little power or control over their children because the state has supplanted their role. How is this? <laughs> I mean, there. I mean, I, and that, let me asking, let, let me let, let me just explain a little bit about the, about my point of raising this question. Uh, and I think people need to take a look at it in terms of uh, this question of the role of mothers in society. When you're talking about, you can have political control where you can dictate how long a child has to go to mentor school. When you have the power to dictate what type of food you can give or feed the children, when you have the power to dictate and create conditions of unemployment, when you have the power of deciding what type of textbooks and the quality of textbooks and what kind of information a child may or may not receive, when you have power that you can dictate where people can live and it's cost of living and whether or not you have the basic necessities to just exist, when you have the power to make policies, say at 18, your son going to go and fight a war for a few rich people. These are the kind of things the mothers control over. That's what I mean in terms of the states of planning them. They are really mm-hmm. creating more, 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 Situations where um, children are, are forced to do things that may not necessarily be something that the mother will, will, will make that type of same decision. So I'd just like to have your response to that. Yeah, I mean, again, I think this is a, a complicated one. I think in in the context of the in the context of the U.S., when we know that the way society works is not for the sort of greater good of society. We know that these decisions are, like I said, designed to create a sort of perpetual underclass, a perpetual laboring class, um, and that 
is, you know, I mean, again, that, that is I, that is a thing, a logic that comes out of um, colonial and enslaved institutions uh, where, you know, you, you breed people for your, for your purposes or your benefits. But I think that, I don't know that that, that is um, negative in an absolute sense, because I think if we were to live in a society where we actually had collective control and so we had collective understandings about what was for the benefit, and so there were some centralized decisions made about, you know, because in spite of the fact that they make decisions about what we eat, we have access to some of the shittiest food in the developed world. Like, you know, and so I, I do, I think that there is, under different societal circumstances, I think that there is value in some of these centralized decisions about what it means to um, bring people up in the world. Because I, because I do think that there, there are problems with the bourgeois family structure being the center of society. And, I, and we know that in this country that's a very sort of right-wing, conservative um, uh, way of thinking about society that, you know, that we have reduced the notion of society to the nuclear family. I think it is important that we think about the family structure as part of society, but I, but I don't think that it is in our best interest to always sort of reduce all of these decisions to sort of individual, you know, parental decisions in a general sense. I think in this country where we know that these decisions are not being made in our best interest, we fight against that um, because we are, you know, trying that, trying to engage in our own sort of uh, self-determined practices. So I, so I think that there is a, I think that that depends on the context is what I'll say. Okay. On the note, what we're going to do right now, you listen to Africa on the Move. Brother Africa is interviewing our sister, Professor Layla D. Brown. And we're talking about this whole concept of Mother Day and what it means to be a mother. We're going to go to a roughly year break, and then when we come back, we're going to let you, the listening audience, we have people on, on, on the board that have been waiting so patiently. But when we come back from the break, we're going to open up our phone lines, and you can now have opportunity to engage in this conversation with our sister, Layla. So we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move.
Welcome to Africa on the Move. Your question or comment, call us 6029. Yes, yes. Um, I've got a quick question um, for, for the uh, professor. Now, I'm not, I want to be redundant, uh, you know, so I had three previous questions I wanted to ask you, but you entertain those questions, so i got a different question for you. Now, here's the thing. There's a tremendous amount of uh, apparently, uh, seemingly, uh, animosity toward women. Uh, it's my view that a lot of this animosity uh, is a result of men's um, understanding that in terms of the capacity to love, women have a greater capacity to love. In that context, uh, men are threatened by women's sexuality. Uh, one of the things we talk about these pejorative terms that they, that, that, they, that are banded about when it comes to women. We talk about the B word, hag, nag, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but it all goes to uh, somehow to dehumanize the woman. And my position is that, you know, it has a lot to do in terms of feeling threatened, at least sexually. Now, I know you're going to be very diplomatic in your response, but uh, what is your view in terms of you know, in terms of my analysis? Okay, hold on for a second. Thanks. We have some problem with that board. Uh, let me just see if I can make this change right quick, and we're going to bring the professor in now. Now, professor, we should be able to hear you now. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry about that. Um I think that's a really interesting question. Um, one, you know, it's, I, I do think that this belief about a greater capacity to love from women is directly tied to women's role as mother. Um, and it is, I think it is because, you know, people believe that there is this, um, what do you call it? Uh, I guess, I don't know, evolutionary, evolutionary um, uh, primal instinct that women have because they carry and nurse children that they have a greater capacity um, for love. The, the thing about that is that I think we have advanced as a human society to where we, we see many instances of maternal neglect um, when it comes to children, and we see, and I've I've seen many instances of paternal care and nurturing um, and love. I I don't want to you know expand that to make some grand statement that that it is um, you know a greater in percentage than than women because I I think the statistics bear out the truth. Um, but but we do see that as an example. Um, but I believe that fundamentally these these ideas are a product of sort of patriarchal under, of our sort of patriarchal understanding of society, and I think that that's largely tied to um, capitalist notions of sort of value, um, value of certain things and undervaluing of, of different types of labor, right? Um, I also think that, that it has a lot to do, I mean, a, a lot of the preoccupations with women's sexuality under capitalism have to do with historically um, preoccupations over a lack of male knowledge of who their heirs are and what it means to transfer property. And I think that as, you know, poor people, black people, indigenous people, we have erroneously inherited these ideas from society um, about these sort of male-female relational engagements 
Um, and so I think that that's the sort of product of a, of a larger sort of societal structural issue, which is about the fact that, you know, there's the saying, what is it, mama's baby, papa's baby, um, that because women birth children, they know who their children are. When men, you know, prior to, you know, paternity tests and all that stuff, men, you know, may or may not know who their exact heirs are. And so because of that, in order to determine who their heirs are, there is a societal need to control who women have sex with so that men can know who their heirs are. And I think that that's more than anything, that's what that's tied to. We can, we create all these sort of subsequent uh, justifications and rationalizations about women as hoes or sexist and misuse or whatever, but I think it's fundamentally tied to sort of capitalist preoccupations with inheritance rights. Oh, that's, 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 I, I could see that. We're, we're, let me just a quick follow-up. One of the problems is that in the society, you know, we talk about, um, you know, um, um, sexual performance. In that regard, you know, um, men pride ourselves on terms of our ability in terms of, quote-unquote, being able to satisfy a female. But the reality is when you get right down to it in terms of just when it comes to intimacy, and in terms of, the, the reality is that uh, the, 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 the person or the gender who's most capable in terms of really um, uh, uh, um, leading the way in terms of in terms of satisfaction, it's really the woman. Um, and, and, and let me see, see. The one of the things is that you know it's interesting because one of the things is that if you have one, well, let me just put it this way: from a spiritual point of view, one of the things is that uh, there's this notion in fact that one of the things good about women was they understand this deficit when it comes to male male potency when it comes to intimacy. And they understand that. But if a woman really wanted to, she could really cripple a guy emotionally or even psychologically in terms of his, his performance. So in that context, men, men are woefully aware that the, when it comes to sexual powers, it really resides with the woman. So in that context, if you've got this fear that she could use her powers to actually change the world, then that's more of a Senate in terms of creating conditions to make sure that her power remains in check. So, so my question is, I hear what you're saying, but my, my concern is more along the line of intimacy in terms of the ability to, to uh, or the capacity to love. Uh, so I'm talking about more intimacy. Uh, so, but I agree with your analysis in terms of capitalism, in terms of, you know, overwhelming desire to control uh, every, woman's, every aspect of a woman's existence, and I agree with that. But I think just in terms of intimacy, you know, one of the things that men are intimately aware that in fact, when it comes down to to prowess, when it comes to intimacy, it really resides with women. So, your response? I mean, um, again, I don't. So, I'm, I'm. I know you said I would have a diplomatic response. I'm always hesitant to make sort of blanket statements about, um, you know, women's uh, increased capacity for intimacy or ability to, to care for to, to to what do you call it. Um, control men emotionally, but on the question of um, intimacy, uh, on the question of sort of sexual pleasure, statistically, I mean, it's been studied. Most women don't experience um, orgasms until their thirties and and later, um, and many of them don't orgasm through um, 
heterosexual penetrated sex. It, it tends to happen through masturbation or other sorts of things. And so, you know, I think that there is a sort, and again, I think that this sort of general, I mean, this is why we see in other places um, what they call female, female um, genital mutilation. There is this kind of overwhelming obsession with um, controlling women's ability, women's ability to receive pleasure, but I think that there's also a fundamental lack of understanding of women's pleasure. Um, and you know, I, and if and if women do have an increased or greater capacity for care or love or intimacy or nurturing, um, I would say that it is it is a product of the way we are constructed in society and not, and I don't necessarily believe it's something that is innate in us. I believe that we have allowed men over generations, centuries to, to advocate that responsibility. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's any more innate in women than it is in men. I think that there are societal um, norms that, allow, you know, manhood to be constructed in a certain way and that allow womanhood to be constructed in a certain way. Because the notion of a bad mother is so much more piercing and, and damning than the notion of a bad father, right? Like the, the, the notion of an uncaring mother, and even, even when it comes to a, a father that's present, but if, but you know, if a father is present but not necessarily caring or gentle, that's a, that's an accepted sort of societal norm. And a father that is present, nurturing, caring, gentle, he is, you know, celebrated. Or even a partner, a husband that is particularly nurturing or that engages in these sort of reproductive labor practices like cooking and cleaning, um, and tending to, like, you know, that, that's seen as anomalous, right? So I don't, again, I don't think it's anything that's innate. I think that, you know, these are still products of sort of societal norms about what masculinity and femininity are. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. Let's go to the next caller. We're bringing... Call us 6057, 6057. The mic is yours. Hey, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you and our uh, special guest, uh, Professor Layla Brown. Um, I want to raise, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, something regarding how uh how this uh how the oppression of african women started and um i think uh i think it started when there was a differentiation between the value of a woman's labor versus a man's labor and uh what i'm referring to is the fact that under under communal societies uh men's men's and women's role in that in that in communal societies was equally important it wasn't until these communal societies started producing a surplus that that changed and then uh then uh then the value of uh of uh some labors laborers became more valuable than others and that's what started exploitation 
and uh, and uh, Africa follows the same pattern if you look at all of African history, which goes back some three million years. So you're talking about a process that took a long time to occur. But uh, but it was this uh, it was the value it was this change in value of one's labor that started uh, women's oppression and therefore the uh, uh, the desire of men to control women's uh, you know uh, role in society. Uh, could you speak to that based upon uh, your, uh, you know, your research? And do you think that's a factor in why, uh, you know, in exploitative societies such as uh, slavery, feudalism, and capitalism, that there is this uh, importance on placed on controlling uh, women's role in society by men? I mean, I think absolutely, I think you laid it out fairly clearly, Um, you know, my understanding. So, you know, again, I mean, a a part of what, you know, if if those of us who sort of follow these kind of, um, you know, Marxist analyses of labor, um, you know, we understand that it is the sort of the the division of labor is what sort of creates the sort of differential uh, and, and it's not even just, how do I say this more clearly? There, I think there has, again, okay, so let me take it back. You are right about the fact that at the, you know, as when we existed as nomadic people, um, and so we were sort of moving around, and the, the type of labor that we engaged in was uh, sustenance, uh, you know, labor that sustained us, but not necessarily labor that generated um, surplus value. Um, there was not the same level of um, exploitative practices, right? And that as we begin to sort of settle and engage in uh, you know, practices of animal husbandry and, and farming, sort of agricultural practices as we become sort of sedenta- more sedentary societies um, or settled societies, and we begin to sort of generate um, surplus, then we begin to um, see particular kinds of gender divisions of labor, right? Um, and, that, and, then the, and then the sort of subsequent attachment of value to certain types of labor. And and, and again, to your point, I mean, I agree with you. I'm just sort of contextualizing it. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't um, differ from anything that you offered. Um, I thought I lost my train of thought, Lord. Uh, <laughs> um, once, so once you sort of um, begin to engage in this creation of, of surplus, um, you know, surplus food. Uh, you know, surplus sort of, you know, animal, increased animals, we start to have um, preoccupations with access, with control over land. Um, and I think that those sort of early preoccupations with control over land then extend to other mechanisms of control. And, you know, I think as human beings begin to dominate animals, we begin to sort of develop our system for dominating one another. Um, and we we understand that we can create groups of people who you know 
exist to serve other groups of people. And so to your point about these sort of um, exploitative economic structures of, of feudalism, slavery, capitalism, um, these sort of fundamentally exploitative societies, you know, I, I, there is no way, I think, for us to understand what it means to value life because there is no fundamental issue with a division of labor. There is no fundamental issue with determining that certain people have certain skill sets and can do certain things um, better than others. The problem is that the problem is when we ascribe those roles to um, factors that are predetermined about people and that are really arbitrary and that, you know, when we determine, you know, what people do based on their actual skill sets, based on their actual abilities and or desires, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with, you know, determining how, how we engage in labor in that way. But when we say that women must do certain types of labor that is then devalued or black people must do certain types of labor that is then devalued or immigrants must do certain types of labor that is then devalued, those, those are the, the sort of exploitative ways in which we exist and that we sort of can't escape from. And so there's, I don't, there's no way, I think, for us to exist as sort of fully realized human beings under these exploitative systems because that's how, they're, they're, that's how they're designed. Right. I, uh, I, 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 I agree with you. And uh, I just want to, you know, I wanted, uh, you know, to add that, I think uh you know uh you know uh, one of the aspects of African culture is that uh is that generally because we have such a long communal tradition I think we've always held African women in high esteem but uh but on the other hand uh is uh is also uh Africa's also the same place where the exploitation of women started. So you know it's that uh you, uh you know it's uh, it, you know it's the uneven development of uh, African society that contributes to that contradiction in my opinion. Uh you know uh you know in in certain places communalism existed for a longer period of time than in other areas and uh which uh you know because they developed faster they developed exploitative systems faster and therefore uh you know there was the uh uh the impression the oppression of uh of women uh took off at in in certain locations where there was uh where there was a gr- a greater value placed on surplus labor than uh than in other areas but generally i think africa has a longer communal tradition than in uh than than uh, certain other parts of the world such as europe and asia i think i think that's true that we do have a um Definitely, I think I do think that um, we have a longer communal tradition than than Europe, but I I also think that um, 
I I but I also believe that the communal the communal tradition I think is how do you how do I say this? I think that that is the the sort of truer human state of things, right? And so I actually think that that communal form of existence existed in a lot, you know, it existed in a lot of places, but the but that you know that sense of greed that developed that the sense of greed that developed through the accumulation of surplus sort of takes over so rapidly. Um, and you know we see this sort of rapid expansion of you know wars over territory, settler colonialism, imperialism, um, and so we you know obviously we can if when we talk about um, just sort of anthropologically the African continent as as the birthplace of human civilization, then we will see I think all of these different systems of social organization in in their gestational stages in, in some way, shape, fashion, or form. But I think it's undisputable that the nature of the exploitation and oppression that we exist that we experience today is a product of these of these systems of colonialism and imperialism, which find their roots in the systems of, of slavery and feudalism. So. Thanks. All right, let's go to our next caller. Caller? You are at seven two three six seven two three six. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you to Professor Layla Brown for a very interesting show. Thank you, Brother Africa. You know, my concern is that the UN has recognized uh, the fact that women. Uh, one in four women and children in their lifetime will experience uh, sexual violence uh, and abuse. What can we do as uh, a society to help bring this into the attention of U.S. society so that we become aware and uh, stop the abuse of women and children? You see, for example, African children are... Uh, sexualized at a very young age, but the real concern is uh, our failure as a nation to recognize what numerous other nations have recognized, and that is uh, violence and the abuse of women and girls in our society. One in four is uh, said to uh, will have experienced this in her lifetime, and that represents one billion people. Uh, Professor Brown, what can we do as I ask to uh, raise the consciousness of people to respect women and girls, and mothers in particular? And also I'd like to say to your listening audience, uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, to everyone and uh, their families as well. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, that's, you know, that's a, a huge question. And I, so my first inclination is to say that if I knew the explicit answer to that, I would be doing <laughs> so much more. Um, but I think part of it is that, you know, we are having these conversations. I mean, I think that statistic about one in four, and that and that's just 
that we that we know of, right? And so the, the, the estimates are that they could even be higher than that because the degree to which um, sexual assault goes unreported, and in particular in, in black and brown communities, um, is, is quite high. Um, but, I, I mean, I do think that, you know, I, I, I don't really know. And other than other than having these conversations, other than other than people being willing to actually, um, you know, talk about these things to raise these issues, I mean, I, I think that the the problem of of sort of what they call femicide or violence against women, violence against children, again, I think is a sort of fundamental ill of the of the type of society that we live and exist in, because I think fundamentally we don't value people or life. And that the way power is concentrated um, in this society is largely um, sort of within male-dominated structures. Um, but you know, I think that there there are so many silences. I think in our communities. So this is what I'll say. I think that while we have a propensity towards communalism. Um, and because we tend to rely on our familial, extended familial structures to to survive in a society, oftentimes when women and children are abused in these in the in our in our context, we we take the abuse as the lesser of two evils, right? Because there's the abuse, and then there's the potential of being homeless or starving or, you know, all these other things. And so what ends up happening a lot of times is that, you know, women, you know, or families or whatever will make decisions to say, you know, that we, 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 don't, we don't talk about these things because we need to continue to sort of rely on these extended networks because of the other ways that we're exploited um, as communities. And so we have to ask ourselves real questions about what that silence does for damaging What that silence does for damaging our psyche, our emotional, our, you know, mental well-being. And, I mean, I don't, other than, I mean, in terms of raising awareness about it, I think the main thing is is to be able to have these conversations on the sort of smaller levels in families to not, you know, to not deny or accuse women women or children of lying when they say that, you know, people in their family, because uh, also we have this idea about rape, that it is um, this, this, this danger that is a threat of strangers, and more often than not, people who experience sexual assault and violence experience it at the hands of somebody that they know, right? Um, and so we have to be so much more vigilant um, about believing each other. I think, and paying attention to warning signs. And I also think, so this is another thing I think about parenting and about um, raising children with a sense of themselves and a particular type of autonomy. The practice that we have long engaged in as a community that says children are to be seen and not heard um, can do a different type of damage, right? And so when we don't see children as um self-determined um, agents of their own lives, and we don't see them as people who can speak up and advocate for themselves, and when we just dismiss children's behavior as bad, um, and we don't 
and we don't look at them as, you know, full human beings who are experiencing a range of emotions and people to believe, um, then we continue to perpetuate certain types of harms and violences. And so I think that, that in, in relationship to the practice of mothering in particular, I think it's very important for us to think about what it means to raise our children as, self, as advocates for themselves who, who speak up, um, who feel comfortable sharing things that happen, um, and they will feel comfortable sharing things that happen when they know they'll be believed. And I think that that's important across the board. And so I think, you know, those are just among some of the things that I think we have to do um, to, you know, do the best that we can to sort of struggle against these these ills. You have anything else you'd like to say, Carla? I think she has left the board. We'll go to Carla four two nine eight. Carla four two nine eight. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Your question called or comment, caller 4298. Well, thank you, Brother Africa, and uh, thank you, Professor Layla D. Brown. Um, it's been a pleasure to listen to your analysis, and uh, and uh, and certainly you seem to know what you're talking about, uh, and um, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to be enlightened. Um, I let's see. It's Mother's Day. I should say Happy Mother's Day to all those who have the fortune to be mothers. And um, um, and um, they say they say on Mother's Day you can't get a reservation in a restaurant. They say on Father's Day you can get any restaurant you want. But anyway, um. This, this happy Mother's Day to all the mothers, and I really don't have any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. I think our last caller might might have had another question. I can come back to this caller. Caller seven two three six seven two three six. Do you have another question? Yes. Seven two three six. Thank you. Yes, I I do. I. I noticed that in in uh, 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 you run into people that refer to women as baby mamas, and and I find that very distasteful and disdaining. These women fail to have names; their children uh, are it's it's quite awful. What can we do as a community to uh, discourage and to uh, stop that type of behavior. Thank you, Carla. Professor Brown? I mean, I think, again, um, so it's hard to answer that, that question about what can we do to, to sort of stop that. But I think, you know, if we, you know, I mean, we – the thing is, baby mama has a negative connotation because it has it's often tied to these sort of um, what's the like these sort of Moynihanian ideas about sort of welfare 
queens and, you know, abusive mothers or neglectful mothers. Um, but when people are not in, engaged in relationships with one another, you know, the, the nature of their relationship, you know, come, comes to be about the child. And so, you know, the mother of my child, the father of my child um, is not necessarily a person I have a relationship to but for the child, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, if we have a different understanding of the importance of child rearing um, and creating safe uh, environments where children thrive um, and we and we pay sort of less attention to the kind of antagonistic, sometimes antagonistic um, relationships between the parents and focus on the sort of well-being of the child, I think, you know, those things can, can shift some of those perspectives. Um, but I also, I mean, I think a lot of it fundamentally has to do with the sort of respect and or lack of respect we have for one another. I think, you know, building our own sense of respect for ourselves um, will, will shift some of the ways we relate to one another, even when we're no longer engaged in those kinds of intimate relationships where we once liked the person, right? Um, but we understand we have a responsibility to, to this person or with this person to engage in other important acts like rearing a child beyond ourselves, right? And so I think so much of it is just that we have to be able to think about our responsibilities to the world, to society, beyond our sort of individual likes or dislikes. You know, Professor Brown, um, just going back to that, the beginning of the program, and I often say to myself that sometimes we become creature, uh, creatures of habit, or we just go to take things because we just hear people say it so much. And I ask you this question. What does it really mean to say Happy Mother Day under a capitalist political system? <sighs> I mean... I think it's it's saying, you know, best of luck to you. <laughs> uh, you know, you live in you live in a, a society that you know devalues your labor and will more likely than not exploit the labor of your child. Um, and you know, it's a uh, yeah. I mean, I think you know. I think, yeah, going back to that first question, I think if, if we continue to think about mothering or, or motherhood as as a process, and I think more than anything, a, a political process, um, a, catalyst, a, a potential catalyst for change in society, um, then we can utilize Mother's Day to sort of reflect on what we might continue to do what we've ha- what we have done what what we might do differently um but i do think it is a little bit of a um what would you call it um i don't know a, a misnomer a, a mis sort of characterization um to say happy mother's day when when so many mothers are really struggling just just i mean literally just to survive and I think, you know, we have to think about what life is beyond survival. Like, what is life, you know, what is thriving look like? What is, you know, a full realization of ourselves look like? Um, and Mother's Day can offer an opportunity for us to reflect on those things, I think. You know, Professor Brown, I think earlier we alluded to you wear many titles and have many hats. 
You're also a Pan-Africanist, and you're organizer for the All-African People's Representative Party GC, and you work with their women, women Union Wing, the AAWIU, the All-African Women Revolutionary Union. Now, under this concept of Pan-Africanism, how will brothers be viewed and respected? First, from your own understanding, can you explain to our audience how you view this concept of pan-Africanism? What is it? But how would that maybe have an impact or a different perspective on how they may view, view mothers? I mean, so, you know, as you know, as a, as a party, um, our understanding of, of pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And I think that if we understand Pan-Africanism as an objective, a goal of unity, um, and under a particular kind of economic system, which is socialism, um, then we can understand the role of mother of motherhood or mothers or mothering, um, one, to instill those types of values um, in children, to model those types of, of, of ways of being, of relating socially. Um, and again, uh, ultimately, that mother, that mothering or motherhood is, is a political is a political act, and it's not just about this. Um, and I, I'm not saying that that this is what motherhood is, but it, that it is not simply this self-involved desire to um, realize, um, you know. And desires through your children in, in a in a sort of superficial way, but that that each subsequent generation is an opportunity to move closer towards our goals of unity and liberation under socialism. And so, when we as parents, as mothers, we have to model those. And and, and to be honest, the, the the home life structure under capitalism. It's probably one of the places where we experience the closest form of social organization to socialism um, in, the, in in a capitalist society, and that and that is in particular when there's multiple children. Um, I, I think it's a little bit different when there's an only child, um, but you know, basic things like sharing resources and responsibility, you know, with siblings, responsibility according to what you're able to do, right? Older siblings can do things that younger siblings can't, have more responsibility, whatever. Um, you know, that parents are there to guide but not dictate children's lives, right? That they, they're able, they're there to help children realize what it is that they're meant to do in the world but not just to, you know, make them little machines that are replicas of themselves, right? So I think that, um, you know, if, if we are understanding our goal, this goal of panacheism, then, then everything, every aspect of our lives has to be about realizing that. That's, that's the way we parent. That's the way we do friendships. That's the way we engage in work. That's the way we do social life, right? Um, and so I think, you know, motherhood is just one of those examples um, where, you know, there's a, a potential um, to, to, to really continue to nurture those ideas and, and make them a reality one day. You know, Professor, when we look at mothers and we see there are different levels to this issues of mothers, when we look at mothers who are wealthy or doing so-called well, 
versus mothers who are not. Now, those who may be less wealthy and not doing as well, they tend to have a better understanding and love for humanity. Um, can you explain if that is true or if that is true, what, what is the basis for that? Um, I think, again, you know, I, 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 I think some wealthy mothers have the capacity for an understanding of humanity and love, but I think the reason why that statement is probably true is that when you have less, you have to figure out how to do more with less. And not only to have to do more with less, but you have to figure out how to do more with other people. And so I think that the nature of, of wealth and accumulation allows us to become more and more individualistic. Um, and that, you know, when we do not, when we don't have an unlimited resource supply and when we have to rely on other people for our survival and well-being, we learn um, different ways of engaging. And I do think that that um, forces us to engage our own humanity and it forces us to think about questions of love in different types of way, whereas wealth allows us to sort of um, lock ourselves away um, and construct ourselves as above people or better than people. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that it. I don't even know if it's necessarily about it's, – it's less about, obviously, the mothers, and it's more about, excuse me, what the condition of um, not needing to rely on other human beings does for your own development as a person. And I think that as long – and so that's why I say I think that if people can be wealthy and continue to – engage um, people in sort of non-individualistic ways. It can be. I, don't, I, I think the tendency is not necessarily overwhelming, but it's possible. Um, in the same way that people can be poor and miserly, right? Like, um, you know, both of those things exist. But I do think a state of lack um, requires more human interdependence, and, those, and that type of human interdependence cultivates, I think, greater understandings of humanity and love. Now, how does motherhood help shape a person's understanding of the world? So I talked about this a little bit earlier um, when I said that um, to there there are things that you know you may or may not think about. I mean, okay, this is just a very basic example, right? It's a very sort of benign example. Um, there are many women who, you know, engage in the process of straightening their hair, you know, for the majority of their life. It's an aesthetic practice. I'm not making any judgment on it. It's an aesthetic practice. And then they have a, a daughter and, you know, they've made whatever decision they've made to not straighten their daughter's hair for whatever amount of time. Then one day the daughter asked the mother, oh, you know, can I wear my hair like yours? Or maybe the daughter says something like, I don't think my hair is pretty. And then the mother asks herself a question. What is it that I'm doing um, or I'm modeling for my child that is making my child question themselves? Um, and then the mother maybe makes a different decision. Maybe the mother makes a decision to wear their hair natural for a while. 
um, in order to show their daughter that they can be beautiful or whatever in their natural state, right? But again, this is a very sort of benign example, um, but I think it's one of the the it's a it's a illustrative example of the ways that motherhood or parenthood can be transformative um, for ourselves because because we have this person who is watching our every move and is basing how they exist in the world on how we exist in the world. And when we start to see things in them um, that maybe we don't even think are that bad for ourselves, but we say, oh, we don't, I don't really want that for my child, um, then, you know, you start to engage differently in the world. And I think that that happens from, you know, very simple things like the example that I just gave in terms of straight hair. And I think that goes all the way up, you know, to, to fighting school systems and fighting, you know, prison systems and the, and the, the, the nation so that your child um, can live and exist, you know, a full and realized life. And so I think um, the, the state of being responsible for another person's life in a system or society that is really designed for none of us to survive um, you know, it, it can make us be more critical. It can make us develop um, a different type of politics. And, I, you know, I think for a lot of women, um, a lot of people, parenthood is a, is a site of radicalization. And I think that, um, you know, that, that's something important to pay attention to, um, even in spite of all the ways that parenthood and motherhood can limit some of our own personal kind of individual freedom or liberty or whatever it is, I think that there's so much to learn from caring for another human being. At this point in time, you listen to Africa on the Move, Brother Africa. He's interviewing our sister here, Professor Layla D. Brown, who is an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolution by GC. We are discussing this issue of a tribute to moms, mothers of the masses. Happy Mother Day. We're going to take a quick revolution break, and when we come back, we're going to be closing out this particular theme for the night. This is Africa on the Moon.
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Um, at this particular time, we'd like to take some liberties and make a few announcements, and then we'll go back to our guest, Professor Brown, as we close out the discussion on today's topic. A tribute to moms, mothers of the masses. Happy Mother's Day. We just want to remind our audience and listeners viewers that you can hear this program every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. on every Sunday evening. So please spread the word, share the word that Africa is on the move and come and join us. We try to give you information so we can elevate the level of your activities towards helping to alleviate the suffering of our people and help free, unify Africa and our brothers and sisters. Also, we'd like to let you know all this month we are in solidarity and in support of African Liberation Month that is being put together under the banner of the AAPRPGC. And this year's theme is unleashing a offensive for 64 years of African Liberation Day, intensifying the revolutionary struggle against capitalism and imperialism, Zionism and neocolonialism, forward to pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. That's their theme for this year. They are organizing many activities throughout this particular month. For more information about upcoming activities, please visit our website, which is www.a-app-gc.org. That's www.a-app-gc.org. Check out the site. And also, from time to time, we will be doing additional programs throughout this month, and you can always find that out by going to the website. We also would like to remind you that we are still organizing and working with the African Awareness Association as they plan and take their annual free ride trip to Cuba from July the 23rd to the 31st. They'll be visiting three cities. It's going to be very unique from Guantanamo to Santiago to Havana. We encourage you to come and see Cuba for yourself. If you've never been and want to see another alternative of how people can live and want to support your brothers and sisters, come on on this Freedom Ride Tour. They, be all, they all will be congregating from Cancun, Mexico. So give African Awareness Association a call by dialing 804-549-7492 or 202 714 Nine four three five, or just email them at African Awareness Association two at gmail dot com. So those are our announcements for right now. We'll go back to Professor Gr- Professor Brown and Professor Brown. We would like to talk a little bit about the nature of what is the AAPRBGC. What is the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC? Uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC is a product of one of Kwame Nkrumah's calls for um, a sort of a mass political organization um, to organize African people on the continent and diaspora 
um, to realize the, the goal of Pan-Africanism, which I said earlier is the co-liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Um, we, the GC, are a, a small, modest unit um, who have existed for quite a while. Um, and, you know, we are struggling, working to build our membership. Um, we are focused on political education um, at the moment. Um, but obviously the goal at some point is to be a mass party. Um, and so, you know, if you're interested in some, you know, revolutionaries uh, in, a, in a revolutionary organization, consider making us your home. <laughs> All right. And also it's a socialist party. Now, socialism seems to be a bad word when our community and our people know very little about socialism. Can you break it down to the everyday brother on the corner who uh, may need to understand this important concept of socialism. Why do you see or do the party see socialism as being the alternative to capitalism? I mean, as, as has come up, you know, numerous times in the conversation, um, capitalism is an economic structure of organizing society, which is, you know, which is based on exploitative labor um, and generating surplus wealth um, in the hands of a few, whereas socialism um, is about the sort of shared responsibility of collective power and shared resources um, and also has a sort of ethical understanding that, um, you know, a lot of times people misunderstand socialism as this sort of um, – undifferentiated equality, um, which is not the basis of socialism. Um, there, There is room, obviously, plenty of room for difference um, under socialism. In fact, the, the desire under socialism is to create consensus among uh, a, a multitude of, of voices in order to make decisions that benefit the masses of people um, as opposed to a wealthy few and that do so based on, you know, your your ability um, and your need, right? And so to understand that we don't employ, a, like I said, a sort of blanket understanding of equality, that everybody does the same thing, it is in its, in its ideal realization, um, it is a system whereby people are able to engage um, in, in society based on their their talents and their abilities and to contribute in that way and to also be able to receive um, what they need to be fully realized human beings, even if they aren't able to contribute um, in the exact same way as everyone else. Oh, very well put together, very well put together. Now, as a political organization, as a uh, Pan-Africanist organization, um, what do you say to people who when you call them an African or try to convince them an African, how do you convince them that that's what they are? Because as right now, this issue of identity is very crucial. It seems like the enemy now begin to continue to create, uh, go backwards, create all kinds of narratives about who our people are and getting them further and further away from truth or understanding that they are African, period. So what do you say to a, 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 a person in terms of trying to explain to them why he is an African? 
I mean, they're, they're sort of ba- the basis of that, you know, obviously has to do with the the reasons why we are here, um, that, you know, obviously we were enslaved. Um, so, so two different things. Um, whether a person is was born and raised in the U.S. or the Caribbean or Brazil or Argentina or wherever, um, we are all here predominantly, even, even recent migrants, we are all here as a result of the either the direct result of slavery and colonialism or the fallout of imperialism. Um, and the reason why I say that is that even people who have supposedly voluntarily migrated to the U.S., they have done so because the U.S., the standard of living in the U.S. exists at such a higher level than so many places in the world precisely because so many other places in the world have been raped, robbed, pillaged, and exploited. And so if people are unable to live fully realized lives in their home countries, the the thought or desire to come to the U.S. is a product of the riches of the U.S., which is a direct result of slavery, colonialism, and imperialism. Um, and so I will say that um, as we originate from the African continent, most of us, even those of us who believe that we came here voluntarily, um, have come here largely uh, against our will, um, and that we are strangers for the most part in this land. We we continue to be treated as less than human beings, um, and that that is largely tied to the I think the current political state of of the the continent of Africa, and so we have to see and understand the, our current conditions as directly linked to the conditions of Africa. And so that's where we have to set our sights. And so I don't know, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a non-starter. <laughs> that, that, that's the essence of that conversation. And also in your party, you have a very unique, unique um, tool called the All African Women Revolutionary Union. What is that? And how would that be used to strengthen the development of African women? Uh, the union, uh, the Austin Women's Revolutionary Union is a substructure of the party as opposed to a parallel structure of the party, um, whereby um, women uh, in the party are able to organize um, specifically in relationship to what um, the specific nature of or the gendered nature of oppression that women experience both in and outside of the party. Um, you know, when the union originally formed in, the, in 1980, um, a lot of the, the impetus around the formation of the union had to do with um, some of the ways that the same gendered forms of oppression were replicating themselves inside of the party structure. And so there was a need, and uh, sorry, there was an understanding of a need to have um, a dedicated space for women to be able to raise these issues. But it is not um, necessarily a women's only space. In that, in that, um, the male members of the organization are encouraged to take the work of the union seriously um, and understand the work of the union to also be the work of the party. Um, and that we are in the, just as we are struggling for our liberation as African people, we are also struggling for our liberation as African women in particular. 
And when you talk about the students, students and the youth, do they have a particular role they can play in your party? They do. <laughs> um, and, and what so, would that be? Uh, so one of the things that the party, um, be, because th- there has been a, a choice or a focus, uh, or the, sorry, a decision to focus on students um, and youth, um, but students as youth, um, for as points of recruitment historically, excuse me, because we understand, one, the necessity of a particular kind of, uh, I think, intellectual um engagement in order to understand the nature of the problems that we face. But we also understand that students exist um, historically. It is, it is becoming different um, in the present. But historically, the, the, the condition of students, um, particularly college students, is one that offered us a slightly more flexible um, mode of living that allowed them to sort of do more of the work of the party than, let's say, um, you know, people who were uh, working full nine-to-five jobs. And so we really understand students and youth to be the kind of um, the heart, you know, of, of the political work, and they are understood to be the, you know, it's the way we sort of realize the, the charge to continue the work, that we understand that even as, as we get older, People have different capacities to do things, and we understand the sort of energetic and intellectual nature and role and responsibility of students. And, again, if you are a youth or a student, um, we encourage you to join the party and and help shape the direction. And, Professor Burrell, our last question for this day for you. Will you speak to our listening audience? on the issue of what can we to ensure that Mother Day will become more meaningful and we can create a climate where mothers get the respect that they should have. What can we do? I mean, one, you know, I think Mother's Day, like like any other day um, that's a commemorative day, is, I think is an opportunity for reflection. Um, but the best way to make Mother's Day meaningful is to engage in uh, an appreciation and a critical understanding of the role of mothers all year round um, to to value and understand the labor of, of motherhood um, and to have these kinds of conversations to make it, to make these things clear because I think a lot of times this I think this is particularly true among poor African women. Um, because we have no choice other than to sort of appear as super women in the world, we uh, black uh, black mothers, African mothers, engage in so much labor that really is killing them in a lot of ways. And our children and our and men also see us engaging in all of that labor that is killing us, and and they and we get celebrated for it verbally without understanding that people need to share the load, right? And so I think the best way to to make Mother's Day meaningful is to understand the value and the labor of mothers year round and to and to help and to help the process of mothering, to help share some of that load, some some of that burden. Through Professor Lado D. Brown, we like to thank you 
and the AAPRPG for allowing us to be a part of this activity as it relates to African Liberation Month. We want you to not to become a stranger. You are now part of the Africa on the Move family. You are welcome back anytime we want to share information with our people about their history and their struggle. And we thank you for getting a perspective and honoring Mother Day and getting a perspective on a tribute to moms, mother of the masses. Happy Mother Day. We thank you. Thank you. All right, to my listening audience, you're listening Brother Africa. This has been Africa on the Moon. As we say every Sunday evening, 7 p.m. at this time, same place, same, same station. You can come and eat some dinner with us and party with us. This is the way how we party. We want to give our people information so they can think. We want to give our people organizations so they think more clearly. We know organization decides everything. If you truly love and want to help your people, you must be an organization. Let's get organized, Africans. Let's get organized. And to the AAPRPGC, much love and respect to you. Continue to do what you do, and we're going to be right with you. So on the note, we're going to clock right on out. This has been the eighth day of May, 2022. We'd like to wish everybody truly a happy Mother Day, but we know that cannot truly be a happy Mother Day until we get rid of capitalism, imperialism, Zionism, all systems that support people, in particular women. And that's what we're fighting for. So we hope to see everybody next week, and we will continue to subscribe to before album, Backwards Novel. Check out the website, www.a-aprp.gc.org. Come and help build AAPRPGC, and you'll be helping your people. This has been Africa on the Moon, and we'll see you next week. And remember, Organization decides everything forever from Brother Africa.
Unify us, don't divide us, 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 unify us, don't divide us